0: All right, I am so excited to be here, uh, I love coming here. I did uh, think about the fact the first time that I came, I had a, a suit on, uh, and then the second time I came, I had a sport jacket and jeans and dress, and now I have the button up shirt and jeans, and on the 26th when I come back, I'm going to have board shorts on and I hat on backwards and a tank top, and then who knows what will happen after that. All right, Awkward. So glad to be here. How's everybody doing? Awesome. I didn't grow up in poverty. Uh, I grew up in a solidly middle class family uh, outside of Edinburgh uh, in the country. We had lots of trees. Um, we rode dirt bikes. But when we were growing up, you know, I thought that my friend had more money. I thought they were richer than us because. They, they got a computer first, and this was the 80s, you know, and uh, it was a Texas instrument computer, 16K, <laughs> games you could play on that thing. My dad stood amazed that it fit on a desk, like a computer that fits on a desk. You know, at work, he walked into a room that was like, anyways, he's old. And he's also sitting right over there. <laughs> Hi, Dad. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. <clears throat> we, but then, then our family got the Commodore 64. <laughs> Does anybody remember? Yes. Oh, we still have my brother. My younger brother still has it. Every once in a while, we still play games on it. It was amazing. It was so awesome. It had you'd load games into it. You'd get a cassette tape, uh, kids. That's a small tape. With little reels on it. You would put that into the cassette loader. You would wait. You would load the game. You would wait. You would go eat dinner and come back until it was loaded into the computer and then you could play the game. It was amazing. So then I thought, well, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe my dad got a raise. That's why, you know, I didn't, I didn't have anything to judge how it worked. You know, they made us think we were poor. Uh, we had to work for everything. We, never, we don't have money for that, kids. So, but but we we didn't really know poverty. We had everything we needed. We had a family that loved us, and we had the stuff that we needed for school. And we family had cars and a house. And I didn't understand poverty then. I didn't know what poverty was. I didn't. I, I, I never saw it. You know, I didn't know that. You know, kids growing up didn't get access to vehicles. You know, when I was 16, I turned 16, we're working during the summers, I got access to the Volkswagen Rabbit diesel, 1981, it was awesome, four-speed on the floor, zero to 60, about zero to 60 was all it could do, (laughs) took part of the day to get there, but zero to 60, 60. 50 miles of the gallon in the 80s, people. Yeah, happened. Volkswagen Rabbit. It didn't just get you from A to B. It gave you a massage along the way. The whole time was awesome. Amazing car. My dad said it was so small that you didn't get it in it. You didn't get in it. You put it on. Just kind of. It's very small. But I didn't know, I didn't understand what poverty was when I grew up and and graduated, went to college, and uh, I became a youth pastor. We started taking trips to New York City with students. We'd go to New York City, we'd drive into New York City, and we would go out on the streets of New York City and take groups of kids at night uh, into places like the Bronx and uh, Brooklyn, into Manhattan, we would take blankets and food to people on the streets, and and what I noticed about, and what struck me there, and kind of, I think God began to shift and change my heart at that time, was we would go and we would find people that lived in boxes. Did you know that there are approximately 100,000 people that are, in, or that are homeless in New York City at any one time? That is the population, the entire population of Erie, Pennsylvania, there are people that live in boxes. We would go out at night and we would take these blankets and food and, 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 and talk to people. And, and what struck me was that people were living in this box. Some of them had master's degrees. You would talk to these people, intelligent people. They, they would say that, you know, in, in New York City, oftentimes people are about two paychecks away from being homeless. Something happens, they lose their job, they get kicked out, they get evicted, and they're on the street. There was one guy that we actually worked with that after getting the blanket and the food from us, left, got on the garbage truck on the corner and went to work, and that's where they dropped him off. He was homeless and had a full-time job. Like some of these realities, just I, I, I was not aware of, I didn't know. And, and the thing that really began to get at me was that there were people living in boxes at the base of these multi-million dollar buildings. And some of those multi-million dollar buildings were churches. And I thought to myself that there's something really wrong with that. There's something that we live in a world of such wealth and still people live in poverty. And the church keeps its doors locked and they live outside on the street. It was from then that I went to work for McLean Church, and and part of the time, uh, after doing youth and college ministry, we planted a church that met in a bar. It was in the cell block. If you remember the cell block, or if you don't want to admit that you had gone into the cell block, the cell block is a nightclub that was downtown near 12th and State, Uh, and it was, uh, if you've ever been in there, an awesome place to have church. More than once, I walked out of my flip-flops because the floor was so sticky. Ew. We started doing church in there, and the vision that I had in my head was everybody that was going to the cell block to party on Saturday night and Friday night would come to church on Sunday. And that's the vision I believe that God let me have. Because had I known what was going to happen next, I probably would have never started it. But how many people here know that God's plans are always way better and way cooler than your own? That his vision for your life and his plans for your life are always way better. And when we opened the doors and we served food, people came in from everywhere. It wasn't necessarily a couple of people that did the partying on the Friday, the Saturday, that, you know, some cool people came in. But everybody else came in, too. We had, we had people that were old and young. We had college students, and we had a nurse and a doctor that were there. We had a teacher that was there. We had people that were homeless there. We had addicts and drug addicts and alcoholics and prostitutes and people that were white and Asian and black and Hispanic. We had everybody. We had single moms there. We started a children's ministry at the cell block. It was really hard to find a safe place. In that place, but we did it. We found one. It was very small. But what God taught me in that place is that poverty is more than just an issue that our society deals with, it's people, it's real people with names. And I didn't realize how much prejudice I had just because I didn't understand. I didn't know until I met Martha, until I met Frank, until I met Bob, and, and heard their stories and realized that poverty is people with real names and real stories. And where would I be in life if I didn't have parents that cared about me? Parents, I hated school. I was horrible at school. I was I struggled with reading my whole uh, career in school. Do you call it a career? My whole, my whole time in school. And my parents were constantly on my case, and it was annoying that they were such on my case, but I wouldn't have finished. I didn't like it, but they constantly about getting good grades and, and, and making sure that I did what I needed to do. And, and what if I didn't have that? What if I didn't have that privilege of having people that cared about me, that wanted me to succeed and would push me to succeed? My dad put me in sports when I was a kid and and made me wrestle other kids in first grade and second grade and, you know, third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade. And I I grew up loving sports. I I got a degree in health and physical education. But what if there wasn't people in my life that cared about me, that pushed me? Where would I be today? I think about that. All of us, have people in our lives. We are where we are because people cared about us. And what happens when you don't have that? See, poverty, the definition of poverty is this. is a deficiency and a necessary ingredient. And I think what happens, why poverty makes us uncomfortable, is I think that when we see the deficiencies in the world, sometimes it it points its finger or presses on the deficiencies in our own life. It makes us uncomfortable because we think maybe, maybe we should do something about this, but I don't know what to do. It, it, it makes us uncomfortable. Oftentimes, I, I think when I talk to people about poverty, they, they often mention this verse. And it, it, Maybe if I did a survey, it's, it's probably one of the most popular verses on poverty. Jesus says that the poor will what? Always be with you. Is that true? Will the poor always be with us? That seems a little defeatism. Like, is that what he meant? They're just supposed to be there? I remember when I first came to the city mission, Pastor Rick Crocker took me to my first Gospel Rescue Mission conference. And I went to this conference and I was excited to learn Um, I now had fallen in love with the city. I had left McLean Church and came to the mission because I wanted to do what we were doing at the church in a bar. I wanted to do that every day. I felt like that's what God was calling me to. I went to this conference, and he invited me, Pastor Rick invited me into the the executive director's meeting. And I thought, oh man, I'm gonna learn today. And my pencil out, and my paper, And I remember them talking in that room about the fact that there was these government agencies that were literally trying to solve the issue of poverty as though that was a bad thing. And and I thought, huh, that seems good. And then this older, wiser gentleman spoke up and he says, but we know something they don't know. And I, oh man, I took the pen cap off my pen because I hadn't taken any notes at that point. I so said, I'm going to learn something now. And he said, The poor will always be with you. So it's like job security for us. Yeah, did you feel that nervous tension, a little bit of laughter in the room? Yeah, that's what happened. Because is that what Jesus meant? Is that what he meant? That they'll just always be with there, do what you can. What does the Bible tell us about poverty? What does it tell us our responsibility is? What should we do? How should we act? When we see that person on the side of the road with the sign, what should we do? When we know that it exists in our city, in our backyards, with people that live all around us, what should we do? Well, what, what, you, what you know about Jesus as a rabbi, or, or, or if you study what they often did with their disciples is they would quote a verse expecting the disciples would know the context from which it came. And that verse actually comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15. We're going to read 4 through 11. If you have a Bible app, you can go there. If you want to follow along on the screen, you can. See, this verse comes from Jesus saying this this story where this woman took this alabaster jar, right, and she breaks it over his feet and she begins to to anoint him with this. And the the disciples, how do they react? They become indignant. I like to say that they became incensed. Alabaster jar full of perfume. Okay, so (laughs) they get upset and they said this could be given to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. So Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. However, there need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow these commands I am giving you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. And I want you to remember this. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will towards your needy, towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelite, the Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So I'm gonna work back through, backwards through this passage. So if you wanna follow along with me, the first thing is that poverty is an issue and is still an issue in our country, in our town. Right now, there are three people, the richest three people in the world. You know who they are? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and the gentleman that owns Telecom. I don't know his name. And those three people own as much wealth as the poorest 48 countries combined. Those three people own as much wealth as the poorest 48 countries combined. Even in our own city right now, the poverty rate in our city is about 30%. That means 30% of the population of Erie, Pennsylvania lives at or below the, uh, below the poverty line, making less than $20,000 a year. Right now, 48% of African-American children in our city, almost half of them grow up in poverty. Our shelters are full. There are very few shelters for families. There are people that live in tents. You remember a while back, a few years ago, there was an article that came out, and there was a tent city. Do you remember that? And the people were living in tents uh, near the tracks in the city. And people were outraged. Well, you know that they chased them out of there, right? You know that their housing problem wasn't fixed, right? They just moved. Crazy thing about living in his tent is you could just pick it up and take it with you and put it up someplace else, and that is what happened. When we were doing doing church in a bar, uh, oftentimes we would pick people up in a van, and we would take them home and pick them up and bring them to church. And we took this one guy, and I said, where where do you live? And he said, right over here. And we let him off the bus, and I was like, "Where, where are you headed? And he's like, oh, just over here in this woods, right down here. One gentleman was uh, coming into the mission uh, when we were doing Church in a Bar, and I had gotten to know him because they were coming to our church. And I saw him at the mission when I was doing the devotional there, and I I said, how are things going? He said, well, not good. We're living in a tent by the tracks. And I was like, do you have any source of income? And he said, yeah, but we can never get enough money to save up for, for security deposits. And so we we live in this tent. It was November, and it had just snowed 20 inches. And so our church actually pitched in and got him the security deposit that he needed. He got the rent, and he put him in an apartment, him and his daughter, and he still lives in the same apartment nine years later. But the thing that was keeping him out was this income. See, when you have a fixed income of about $660? $660? How do you live on that? And there are a number of people in our city living on a fixed income between $660 and 780 What do you do with that? Once you've paid for rent of $500, how do you live on the rest of that money? And these are realities that I just wasn't aware of. We right now at the City Mission have about 650 people to 700 people a week that come through. Our food pantry to get groceries. Each one of those individuals represents an entire family. That's almost uh, 6,000 to 7,000 people that we are serving just through one food pantry in the city. The problem is real and it still exists and it's hard to wrap our head around that there are people in our city living like that. So the second thing is the harboring this wicked thought do you remember this line what was the line what was the wicked thought yeah the seventh year the year of canceling debt why is that a wicked thought I was coming here across 79 some dude cut me off and I swear I had a much more wicked thought than he did than that why is that a wicked thought It's a wicked thought because it's an excuse not to help. It's like saying, you know, this individual, I see you need help, and I know that the year of canceling debts is coming, and so you'll be fine. You'll get your debts canceled. Or if I help you and I give you money, I'm not gonna give my, I'm gonna get my money back. It's an excuse not to give, not to serve. And this is a hard message, and we all have those excuses. All of us have them. So what is, what is our excuse? What are our excuses? What do we say to ourselves? What do we tell ourselves when we are able to walk on by or we go past the person that we see needs help? What are the excuses that we tell ourselves? Maybe you don't see them. There was a gentleman uh, one time that used to, uh, uh, he was on 12th Street, used to sit on the bench, and the business didn't like him sitting out there, and so they removed the bench. A smart guy. He just walked down the street to the next bench he found and sat on that one. He was homeless. But the bench that he sat on first was squarely in the city of Erie. The bench that he moved to was squarely in Mill Creek. All of a sudden, we get flooded with phone calls at the city mission. There's a guy sitting on a bench here in Mill Creek. What do we do? Can you come get him? As if that's what we just go out, round people up. We get the city mission wagon. What a- She's like, well, I, I brought him some food and if, if you can't get him, if he, doesn't, if he keeps sitting here day after day, I'm gonna have to start driving a different way to work. And you think to yourself, man, that's crazy, but what she, what she was actually thinking was, I can't bear to see this guy be homeless and I don't know how to help him. I don't know what to do. I brought him food. He doesn't, I, I did, I went to talk to him. He's a good guy. But he didn't want to go into a shelter. What do we do? What excuses do we have? Well, they, they got himself into this mess. They should pull themselves out by their own bootstraps. You ever hear that phrase, pull themselves out by your own bootstraps? You know, that was originally created to to describe something that's impossible? I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, stand in a bucket and try to lift yourself up someday. See what happens. It is impossible. None of us got to where we are by ourselves. I I, I asked a question to a a college group one time. I said, hey, how many people got to where you are in your college career here uh, all by yourself? And three people raised their hand. was like, oh my, that's amazing. You taught yourself how to read? Oh, no. But you fed yourself as an infant? That's that's incredible. (laughs) None of us, all of us have had people in our lives to help us. John Maxwell would say that all of us are like turtles on a fence post. You, You know what you can assume if you see a turtle on a fence post? He had help. He didn't get there all by himself. We're all surrounded by people in our lives. It doesn't mean that we haven't had adversity in our lives or difficult circumstances, but we've all had people to help us get to where we are. We, we come into this world oftentimes with so many more advantages. And I think, where would I be if, if the friends around me, the only people that cared about me, were selling drugs That that's what they did. That's what they did to survive. If there wasn't parents that cared about me, if that was my existence, then that is what I would be doing. If there wasn't somebody at home or I ended up in a different house every night as a kid growing up, not knowing exactly who was taking care of me, not knowing if those people were safe, would I be in the same place that I am today? And the answer is no. No. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our head around that. And Sometimes people say, I just don't have time to help. There's actually a study done, I think it was done by Yale. And the study was fascinating. It was taking seminary students and it, and it told them that they were going to preach the Good Samaritan. You know the story about the Good Samaritan that like, finds the guy on the side of the road and he, he's the only one, the priest, the, the Levite don't take care of him and the Samaritan helps him, right? And they, binds up his wounds and takes him to the inn and the whole story so they were supposed to walk across campus and preach that message and it was an experiment and what they did was put somebody in their path that was pretending to be homeless in in, in need of help it kind of seems cruel but what they did was set them up and they said okay you're going to preach this message on the good samaritan you you, you better go you, you you've only got about a minute so you better run it." Get there, and you got to do this now. And so, 90% of the seminarians preaching, going to preach the, the Sermon on Good Samaritan, stepped over the homeless person to give the sermon about how to help people that are in need. And then, what they did was they took another group in the same scenario. But they said to the group, You have plenty of time, but you might want to leave now and make your way. And still, a lot of people didn't help the guy. But it went from 90 to 60%. 60% of the people stepped over. And so, one, I would suggest if your life is too busy, if you have too much jam packed in your life, that you can't see the need around you, then you need to make a list, a to-don't list. You need to start a to-don't list in your life, stuff that you're going to stop doing. Because it's oftentimes, we get, our lives are jam-packed with good things. We're all doing good stuff, but they're jam-packed with good things. So many good things that I believe that it, it causes us to miss the best. Sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. If our excuse is time, we've got to create margin to be the kind of people that God needs us to be. One time, my first time in a church, I I took this new position. I was brand new in ministry. And it was down in southern Pennsylvania. And I got one of the first phone calls. I was in the office. Secretary stepped out. I got a phone call. Somebody needed help. They needed a gas card and some money for milk. And I, I thought to myself, yes. Yes, we do. We can help you. Because that's what we do. We're in ministry. We help people. That's what I was taught. That's what the Bible teaches me. So I got out of my chair and I went to the pastor. And I said, hey, there's this person on the phone. They need help. So what do, what do I do? He was like, well, uh, you might want to have them call the Methodist church because we don't, we don't do that anymore. I'm sorry, we don't, we don't help people anymore? That's what I said. <laughs> he was like, yeah, we, you know, we just don't do that. Try the Methodists. I think they still help people. I think the Methodists still help people like Jesus told us to. I was so (laughs) mad. I was so mad. I didn't know. Like, I got on the phone. I I literally gave, I didn't know what to do. It was brand new. I gave them the number to the Methodist church. And I sat there for a minute and I thought, is that what the church is about? We don't do that anymore. We don't help anymore. What are we here to do then? third point as we work up through is how the passage starts. What does it say at the beginning? However, there need be no poor among you. Jesus is expecting his disciples to understand this whole passage, what the scripture says, and that the the vision of the kingdom of God is that there shouldn't be any poor among you. That's the vision. That's what it's about. That's what we're aiming towards. We live in a broken and busted world that things don't go the way they should and people don't do what they should. There is brokenness and sin in this world, yes, but the goal and the mission of the kingdom of God and God's economy is that there shouldn't be any poor among you. And we've got to lock that in and realize that's what we're shooting for. So how do we do that? How do we get there? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. That the vision that when we're in the kingdom, that the kingdom is forcefully advancing in this world, and when we're part of the kingdom of God, when we repent and believe, we become part of God's movement to take what's broken and fix it. That is what our mission is. Yes, to to win people to Christ, to share the love of God, that they would repent and follow him, seek first the kingdom. That as we do that, we see this world and all its brokenness and all that sin has done, and we begin to dive in and do something about it. It's so hard sometimes but that is what we're called to. That is what the kingdom of God does on earth as it is in heaven. To change our mindset and realize that one of the main ways that we share the love of Christ, it is in the tangible way that we show that love to people who are in desperate need of it. And listen, I'm not saying that you need to walk out of here and take all the money out of your pocket and give it to somebody because that doesn't necessarily fix the problem. But what we're supposed to do is figure out how to fix the problem. How to show the love of Christ. So what was Jesus's point? I believe this. That woman took that alabaster jar of all that expensive perfume. It may be all the money that she had and she broke it on Jesus' feet. She gave everything to him first that it starts with our relationship with Christ. And this morning, I just want to say, if you're here and maybe you wandered in or somebody drugged you here or you just wanted to see what this church was all about or it looked pretty from the highway, whatever it is, you're here and you're wondering about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. I tell you, there, there is no better thing that you can give your life to That the one who created you and loves you went to the cross to die in your place so that you could have access to that relationship. That your sin can be forgiven and that you could enter and step into this new way of life, the kingdom of God. And my prayer is that you start there. That maybe some of us have wandered from the faith and and we've become jaded by the world. And guess what? The world is gonna continue to act contrary to what God wants. Just for FYI. It's going to continue to do things that are bad and broken and hurtful. And it's happening all around us. Our job as followers of Christ is to break in and fix it. Seek first the kingdom. That's why Jesus says that all the law and the prophets hinge on these two things. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That that's what it comes down to, that we are here to love, tangibly to love. God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated in a very tangible way by sacrificing his life for us. And so what will we do as his followers now to go out into this world and tangibly demonstrate the love of Christ to the people that are in desperate need of it. They need to see us serving them to find ways, to make time, to put ourselves in their path. And so how can you start? I believe one of the things that you need to do to start is surrender to Christ. Step three of the 12 steps we say in recovery is to surrender your life and will over to God, and that's where it starts. The second thing you can do is put yourself in places where you come in contact with it. To see the brokenness and the hurt and begin to step in front of it and be willing to do what it takes in order to become part of that story. One of the things that happened to me in church in a bar is I began to to understand where they're coming from. I, I, I begin to understand why they were suffering and struggling with the decisions that they were struggling with. But it takes time. It took me a long time. I am a slow learner, folks. I am a very slow learner. God had me doing that for six years, and I felt like I still don't understand it. I'm now at the city mission four more years later. But to hear people's stories to enter into their life and become friends with people. It changes you. And I think that's part of what God wants us to know. Is that to be like Christ is to step into the brokenness and to live the resurrection life in the midst of the brokenness of the world. And finally, take a step forward. Forward. And listen, I, maybe, maybe you've never helped out. Maybe you give money. I don't know where you're at, what you've done. But my encouragement is to take another step in. To risk some things. To risk some time. To, to risk it being uncomfortable. To risk not knowing what to do. To risk not understanding how to help somebody. To risk just hearing their story and feeling the weight of their life on you to hear their brokenness and to hear where they're coming from and to listen to what's going on in their life. And maybe you can do nothing else but pray for them and maybe that is all that they want, somebody to listen and to pray with them. We know that statistics show that people don't come out of poverty unless they're mentored out, one at a time. Right now, there's about 50,000 people in poverty in our city, in our area. But there are 250,000 other people in our county. And so the numbers work out, folks. If we build a relationship with one or two people and disciple them, to pour into them, it will change you and change them as well. I love this church and I love coming here because I feel the love of Christ when I come here. I'm honored to, to be in a place that, that does so much for our community. And this isn't a shaking my finger. This is this is this is the reality of the world that we live in. And, and we need your we need your help. And I love you guys. So I want to close in, in a word of prayer today. Heavenly Father, we know that um, these words from your scripture are difficult to hear, that you don't want us to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted with our time, with our energy, with our finances. But I believe that the most creative ways of solving the issue of poverty in our city are locked up still in the hearts and minds of the people in the churches of this city that the amazing things that you want to do to set people free, you're birthing in the hearts and minds of those in this room. And the teenagers that go to our youth groups and the college students that, and young adults that go to our EYA and to our college groups all over this city. God, for your purposes and for the advance of your kingdom, Give us your strength we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.